so, Father, you, you tell us, well, Jesus told us, that if we ask you for the Spirit, you'll surely give the Spirit because you're a good Father. And Lord God, we, we need your Spirit in us in order to receive your word and to hear your voice because Lord God, you say things that we can't even will begin to comprehend. And so send your spirit, your anointing Father. In fact, right now, in the silence of your heart, just say that to God. God, would you fill me with your spirit? Did you know that it was only by his spirit that you could ask him to fill you with his spirit? <laughs> God, thank you that you're good. We're asking you, help us preach, cause us to preach in Jesus' name, amen. In John chapter two, you may remember that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then in verse 22, we read this. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed, pisteo is the Greek, trusted the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed, pisteu, trusted in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. So the disciples have faith in Jesus when Jesus dies and rises from the dead and shows them his wounds, his stigmata. And these people say that they have faith when they see all of these signs. However, it appears that they don't really read the signs. They see the signs, verse 24, but Jesus on his part would not entrust, pisteu, trust himself to them. He wouldn't trust them. And we think just them, right? Next clause, he did not trust them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone. For he himself knew what was in Everyone. Literally, he didn't need anyone to testify about, in the Greek, the man, the Adam. For he knew what was in the Adam, the man, the children of Adam. In other words, every son or daughter of Adam is fundamentally untrustworthy. So here's the message for the evening. Don't trust anyone. Born of Adam. Bless you. Don't trust. But wow. I mean, if, if we didn't trust anyone, wouldn't we be like one of those wolf baby children, you know, raised, raised in, the, in the woods? Because you, you are what you trust. Trust no one and you really become no one, right? Trust no one. That seems really impossible. And yet, yet just, just think about it. If you trusted no one, you would never be disappointed by anyone. And you would never be offended by anyone. We get so offended when people sin against us, when people deny us, betray us, kick us out of their group, their assembly, their synagogue. But Jesus says, expect it. In fact, even, even pick up a cross in case they wanna like, you know, pound some nails or something, but don't trust. I couldn't think of any place in all of scripture where we're commanded to trust another son or daughter of, of Adam. I couldn't think of any. Submit to authority, yeah, but not trust authority. Honor your father and mother, yeah, but never trust your father and mother. Trust no one. You see, the scriptures are radically individualistic. Trust no one. And yet Jesus is very clear, love everyone, love everyone. The scriptures are radically 
communal. <laughs> Radically, individually, communal. Trust no one and love everyone. I mean, that would mean like you'd have to like forgive everyone, right? Constantly. Trust no one and love everyone. Expect sin and then celebrate. Celebrate anything that might look like love. For John tells us, love is of God. He who loves is born, begotten of God, and, and, and knows God. Love is not of the flesh, the man, the first Adam. Not love, that's from somewhere else, says John. Well, anyway, don't trust any son or daughter of, of, of Adam, that, that first Adam. That, that means, well, think about it, um, you can't even trust yourself. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. And now this is kind of a paradox if you think about it. You can't even trust your ability to trust. Right? Because if you trust your ability to trust, you're not trusting the Lord. Trust. What, what Paul calls faith, I mean, it must be kind of like the wind. It blows where it wills where it chooses. So we can't control it, we can't understand it, we can't demand it. At best, we can like, you know, maybe befriend it or eat it. Psalm 37.3, trust in the Lord, befriend faithfulness. Also translated, feed on it, eat it, faithfulness. It's weird, but don't trust people. When we do trust people, we trust them to tell us what? The truth. And those we entrust ourselves to, we call authorities. And that probably explains why I've never heard a sermon on these verses, for sermons are preached by authorities like me who want you to trust them. Well, if we forever trust no one, we will forever be no one, like wolf babies raised in the woods. So we gotta trust someone, somebody, someone, someone. Jesus, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them, however he did entirely entrust himself to his Father, and now I know what you're thinking. Oh, well that's just great, that's great, that's great. Because I can't see my Father in heaven. I can't hear my Father in heaven, and now preacher boy, when you tell me about my Father in heaven, you're also telling me to trust that I cannot trust you. Correct. Next verse. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews. That means he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was an authority. He came to Jesus by night. It appears that he didn't want folks to know. Uh, he didn't want to be stigmatized. So he came to Jesus in the dark. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. That's really something if you think about it. People like Nicodemus can see the signs, and yet they cannot see the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the, the very presence of God. People can see tongues and healings and visions and prophecies and miracles and not see or hear the one that they point to. For that to happen, you need to be born from above, which can also be translated born again. Nicodemus said to him, how, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. And what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. 
The wind or the spirit, the word for wind and spirit in Greek and Hebrew is the same word. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The spirit. Whose spirit? Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Daddy. Father, the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And who's Jesus? Jesus is the new Adam, the new man, the faithful witness, the faithful one. And John says he's this, he is the only, get that, only begotten Son. And so if we are to be begotten. It's only because the only begotten is begotten in us. So faith in you or trust in you, belief in you, faith in you is the spirit of Jesus begotten in you because the word of God, the seed of God who is the son of God has found a place in you. That's how John puts it. So if there's faith in you, it's not your faith. (laughs) It's Jesus' faith. And you see, faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. It's grace. Faith is a gift begotten of God by the Spirit of Christ that you might be born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Born again. That's a word you hear hear a lot. I mean, that's gotten real popular in the last 30 years or so. I'm born again. Bubbly people with big hair and lots of makeup on TV say, I'm born again, hallelujah, I'm born again. And then they get other people to give testimonies about being born again. I've been born again. I was just lost and now I'm born again and I'm so happy. And wouldn't you like to be born again? It's great to be born again. You know, I don't think they realize just how traumatic being born can really be. If they were really just born again, maybe their testimony might look a little more like like this. Remember this from our series on, on Genesis? Just watch this. Something I never told you. Something happened when I was a boy. There was an incident with a with a man who was that I'd never seen him before stranger how old were you I don't remember young I was so small I remember I remember I was naked take your time was so naked. I hated being naked. And I remember I was crying. And then he hit me. Adrian, I'm so sorry. There was blood. There was blood everywhere. I was screaming. I wanted him to stop. My mother... My mother was smiling. Wait, wait, your, your mother was there? Why didn't she stop him? She was supposed to protect me. He kept hitting me, swinging me around upside down. You were upside down? Was he wearing a mask? Yeah. I never wanted to be naked again. Adrian, that man was a doctor. You're remembering your own birth. Doctor. Doctor. Anybody else, I wouldn't have believed it, but you. Doctor? Mm-hmm. Well, that would explain a lot, actually. The lights and my father in the doorway holding a balloon. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Isn't that great? When the counselor revealed that the trauma which Adrian Monk had experienced was actually the trauma of his birth, oh gosh, it just changed everything. His father wasn't passive or evil, but, but good, very good and, and trustworthy. And a prison of fear and shame turned into a party with, with balloons. But at the time, you see, at the time, he felt incredibly naked. For the last few years, my heart has felt so naked, stripped of all that I trusted upside down, out of control, and tempted to a prison of fear and shame. Well, anyway, I hope you were here last week. Some of you were here last week because uh, Duncan gave this incredible sermon about birth from Romans chapter eight. And he had this great little skit in which he revealed just how traumatic birth must be. You know, when a baby is born, it must give up everything familiar everything that it's come to trust. And trust that which seems superfluous and unfamiliar. You know, a baby lives in an entirely different world than ours. Or I should say a, a world within our world. A womb world, a dark, fluid world. It's attached to its world by the umbilical cord and the placenta. The cord and placenta are actually genetically part of the baby. They're that part of the baby, that part of the baby attached to the womb world and therefore that part that would seem to be most essential, right? And trustworthy, grounded. But the feet, the eyes, the mouth, the lungs, <laughs> absurd, superfluous, no point. The ears could hear, but, but much of what they, they would hear would, would seem unimportant and absurd for the source of those sounds and the meaning of those sounds would lie outside of that world, that womb world. Do you have organs or things within you that cannot be explained by this world? Superfluous, impractical in these, this world? I mean, I mean, how about things like, like faith? What is that? or hope. And with those things, do you ever hear things like, like love? What is love? You can't locate it, isolate it in a laboratory somewhere in, in this world. So if it's real, perhaps it's evidence of another world. And perhaps the things that seem superfluous in this world, like faith, hope, and love, abide. And that which seems so totally essential in this world, like money, possessions, power, influence, intelligence, your health, your resume, what you consider to be yourself, that part of you uh, most attached to this world, that which you trust, perhaps that gets thrown in a great garbage dump outside the walls of Jerusalem called Gehenna. Just like uh, my umbilical cord and placenta got thrown in a garbage can behind a hospital in Junction City, Kansas in 1961. And you know, I don't miss them at all. But at the time, I'm sure it was thoroughly traumatic. Well, Jesus says you must be born again. But not just born again and nothing, born from above. Not just more of the same, but something from above. And, and you see, I think that's what confuses the world. We Christians get all bubbly and say, I've been born again, but upon close examination, we seem awfully attached to this world. Not all that trustworthy. And there's just not all that much that seems new. I've been born again. And folks say, bummer. <laughs> I was hoping for so much more. I mean, I, I really hope I've never really met anyone that was fully born again. Because I hope for so much more. And I don't think I have ever met anyone that was entirely born again. However, I have met an awful lot of people that were begotten again. And so it might be important to note that scripture really doesn't say born again. It says anaganao, 
or ganao, anothen. And ganao is more normally translated begotten. In places like Matthew 1, um, men beget men. Matthew 2 is very clear that the word means conception. Peter writes, we've been begotten again of incorruptible seed. If you follow the references in the New Testament that Duncan, some of them like the ones Duncan talked about last week, I think you'll find that believers in this world have been begotten and yet they are in the process of being born. And that would explain why you really shouldn't trust them. However, there is something growing in them that you can trust. Paul writes, I am in travail with you, Galatians, until Christ be formed within you. You can't trust people, and yet the trustworthy one is being formed in people. I think that means you can have faith in the faith, hope, and love you encounter in people. So don't be offended or surprised when people fail you, but celebrate in wonder the times that they don't because that's the new man. That's the ultimate Adam. That's Jesus in them. So anyway, if, if you're a believer, you've been begotten and are in the process of being born. In fact, all the trauma of this world is but the labor pain of your delivery. As Paul puts it, all creation groans in travail, waiting for the revelation of the sons of glory. That's us. You're being born. And, and you will know when you are born because you won't be old man and new man. Flesh and spirit, chaff and wheat, but that old self will be severed from the new self, like the umbilical cord is cut from a newborn baby, and you'll rest. You'll rest in the arms of God like a newborn rests in the arms of his parents. Born again. When my firstborn was born, the doctor had me cut the cord. That was weird. It was so exciting and so terrifying all at once. There's blood everywhere. The delivery had come five and a half weeks early. My bride had been passing out from exhaustion and blood loss and 24 hours of hard labor. My son's head had been pressed into a cone and he had a black eye. His world had seemed to just utterly turn against him. It had pressed on him so severely that his entire world expelled him. The labor had literally expired, pressed the fluid out of his lungs, and now he inspired something totally foreign, air. He was entirely naked, and naked of his old world, the darkness, the fluid, the heat. He was entirely naked of his old world, except that cord. That cord on which he had depended for his life, his sustenance, his identity. And then, as he screamed in nakedness, shock, and pain, I cut it. It had been part of him. And his father cut him, <laughs> cut, cut it with a knife. The nurse then picked him up, washed him off, wrapped him in a blanket, and I remember she turned to me and she said, here, you hold him, he knows your voice. And now he was just screaming at the top of his lungs this entire time. And after she handed him to me, he was still screaming at the top of his lungs, but I remember I just looked at him, I looked down at him, and, 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 and I spoke. And like that, he stopped. He knew my voice. He was home. How do you know my voice? Well, for months, I'd spoken to him. I just couldn't wait. 
I mean, to think that my child had been conceived and was now growing in Susan's womb, this empty space of not Susan within Susan, kind of like this dark planet is not God, within God, he was growing in that space. And, and I was so excited. Well, I just, I drew this big smiley face on Susan's belly with indelible black magic marker, you know, which proved to be kind of embarrassing when she went to the doctor, but every night I would talk to it. Talk to the face. Hello in there. I can't wait to meet you. I'm your dad. I love you. Don't really know who you are, boy, girl, but I love you. Love must not make much sense in the womb when you're the only one. Just like the love of God doesn't make much sense in this world where people think that they are the only one. The sacrifice of self doesn't make much sense in a world built on the survival of self, the survival of the fittest. But, but, but I talk into that womb world saying, I love you. I will always love you. And Jonathan, in the womb, heard my word. Of course, he couldn't discern my words. He couldn't even conceive of me and my kingdom, but, but he knew my voice. He knew my voice. I mean, he didn't stop crying when the nurse spoke to him. He stopped crying when I spoke to him. He knew it with organs that seemed superfluous while he was in the, in the womb. He knew my voice, though he couldn't find my voice or explain it in his, in his womb world. I mean, when I spoke, everything in his world vibrated to the sound of my word. Remember, John just revealed something in chapter one, that all creation vibrates with the Father's word. Well, with the organ of faith or hope, do you ever hear the sound of love? According to scripture, your Father is love. And his word is truth. Yet when you testify to love in this world, you know, people say, nice idea, but it's an illusion. It's like a survival mechanism or a herd instinct or some kind of reproductive hormone. There is no true love, for we cannot find it and isolate it in this world or explain it by anything of this world. Well, the word of God is an authority from beyond this world. You hear it in your heart by faith. Nicodemus knew that the prophets have foretold the day when God would create a new heart within us and place his spirit within us. Coming to God in Christ is the spirit of Christ conceived in you as faith. And you must exercise that faith. And, and, and now I know that's a paradox. And it will leave you feeling stripped and naked as the day you were born. But have faith with Christ's faith within you. It's how you hear and know the voice of your father who is love. I don't know how to explain this, but, but I always think of this picture. Years ago, we were praying with my friend Elaine, Susan and I, and she had a vision of, of Jesus while we were praying for her. And in the vision, he was answering questions. And so I asked him for some very specific and practical directions. And Elaine, and I think Susan maybe heard this too, they heard him say, trust your new heart the one that I gave you. As if nothing else really mattered. <laughs> Just trust your new heart, the one that I gave you. You see, that's what I'm trying to say, Christian. Don't trust this world. Don't trust the things of this world. Don't trust other people. Don't trust religious authorities. Don't trust me. Don't trust yourself. But trust the new heart that God has placed within you. I mean, surrender yourself to God in Jesus' name and call on his spirit and listen for the voice of love in faith. Your father is love. And Christ in you is faith. Listen for the voice. Now, that voice may come through me. He may come through others. 
The voice may come through church leaders and books and seminars. The voice may come through rocks and flowers and trees. All creation vibrates to the voice of your Father, but you hear it with a new heart, which God places within you. And it's so important that you come to know that voice, love that voice, and obey that voice. You come to know that voice by obeying it, and it's so important for one day soon you will be lying in the arms of your father, staring in his face, and when he speaks, he wants you to know you're home. For if you don't love his voice, which is his word, then what should be heaven will burn like hell, and you'll shrink from him at his appearing, longing for the darkness and terrorized by the light of his glory. His voice must become your authority in this world before you enter the next world. Your authority nourishes you, sustains you, tells you who you are. Your authority tells you the truth and teaches you all things. Listen to John in 1 John chapter 2. The anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. How about that? But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming, his parousia, his appearing. The anointing, the word within you is your authority. You must rely on the word of God within you even to reveal the word of God on the pages of scripture. That word in you is your authority. And so do you understand why Jesus was and is such a threat to the authorities of this world? Nicodemus was an authority in the authority business. He came to Jesus by night because he didn't want to be stigmatized by the other authorities. I get that. I've been stigmatized. I don't think it would probably be right for me to talk about it except for that I think a lot of you have been stigmatized as well. Maybe you've even heard it. People say, oh, you, you go to that church, that pastor? They're not really sure what's wrong, but they're convinced something is wrong because some religious authority has indicated something is wrong. About five years ago, I preached a sermon on the parable of the vineyard. Ironically, very ironically, it offended some folks. They contacted the authorities in my old denomination, and, and I did as well because I, I didn't want to hide. There are many things that I, that I might do differently now, but in the end, the authorities required that I confess two things publicly. I understood those two things to be this. Number one, that God takes pleasure in damning people to endless torment. And number two, that there is a group of people that cannot be saved. And that means that Jesus cannot save them. Well, when I refused to state those things, I was stripped of my ordination, stripped of my church, stripped of what I, what I thought was my life. And some in authority sent a letter to my entire church, several thousand people, to my denomination, all my colleagues, in which they claimed I said what I don't think I said and claimed that I had, quote, a blind spot to accountability. Yet I don't think the problem was a blind spot to accountability. I think the problem was that I really saw my accountability. The one to whom I must entrust authority. And to be honest, I, I think that kind of ticked off some other authorities. But one day I know I'll have to give an account to God. And he'll ask something like this Peter, who do you say that I am? Not what does the Westminster Confession say? Not what do the authorities of the world say. Not what others say. Who do you say that I am? And I just don't think I can look him in the face and say, you are the one who takes pleasure in damning people to endless torment.
And Jesus, you are unable to save. Maybe others can, can do that, or that are unable to save some. Maybe, maybe others can do that with, with integrity. And so for them, perhaps that's okay, because it's honest. But I know that I could not say that. I couldn't say that without closing my heart to the voice of my Father in me. I couldn't say that without denying the truth in me. I couldn't say that without lying. And you see, any time that we lie, any time we deny the truth within us, whether or not, whether or not we know the truth outside of us, whenever we lie, we shut down the Father's voice. So you see, it wasn't brave of me. Really, it wasn't noble of me at all. I just didn't want to shut off my Father's voice because I didn't want to be stuck in darkness, outer darkness where the evil one gnaws on the souls of men. I wanted to be born again, even if being born again hurts and leaves you with a stigma. I don't care who you are. If the living word of God is your authority, you will offend other authorities. The rulers, the world rulers of this present darkness here in the womb. Maybe civic authority, religious authority, social authority. Maybe the kids at the bus stop who pick on you and tease you because you pray to Jesus. But you will offend the authorities. And that's why Jesus said, you must pick up a cross. You know, Jesus was crucified because the authorities were offended at him, who is all authority. You will offend the authorities, and they will try to cut you off. And yet, really, it's not them. It's your father. You will be stigmatized by them, yet that stigmata is the glorious mark of the second birth given to you by your father with his word who has a double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, old man and new man, placenta and baby. You realize, don't you, that you all, everybody in this room has already been stigmatized by the first birth, right, right? Would you like to see a picture of that stigmata? Would you? Yeah, okay, all right, here it is. That's the scar left from the wound where this person experienced a judgment, which set her free from her old self in a world of darkness. To become a Christian is to surrender to that judgment again. It is to renounce the attachments and the authorities of this world, no matter how naked you feel. And it's to surrender to the word of the Father in you, even when it cuts you, especially when he cuts you, the word. And John has already told us something amazing, that the whole world is created and sustained with the word. Yet more than that, he reveals that once upon a time, the father wrapped his word, the word in flesh, and sent him into our world. When you see him, you see the father. He's called the firstborn of all creation, for we die with him and rise with him. That's how we're born again. Now a question for you. If like that, you were sent back into your mother's womb. Now don't think about this too much, okay? But if you were sent back into your mother's womb to convince your little brothers and sisters to trust the voice of your father and have the courage to surrender to, to being born again, what would you show them? This, right? You'd show them this. You'd say, look, my stigmata. You'd show them your belly button. You'd show them your navel. And you'd say, guys, I don't need it anymore. <laughs> Have courage. Have courage. When the firstborn of all creation returned to the womb of this world, what did he show them? This. The stigmata of the second birth. And that's when they believed. This is the stigmata of the second birth. And this is the stigmata of the first birth. 
And so I have a very practical application point for you. I don't usually have those, but I do now, okay? So are you ready? Are you? Okay, this is what you need to do. You need to spend more time contemplating your navel, all right? In fact, let's do it right now. Guys, you can do this. I know women, they freak out about this kind of stuff, but just look at it, okay? Just, just, just look at it, okay? Come on, Sean. Yeah, that's right. You guys can do it. Young Life guys can do it. Okay, just look. There's a little lint in there, but just, just contemplate. Contemplate your navel for a while. You spend some time every week doing this. Just, just look at your, your navel and then make a declaration. Umbilical cord? You used to be everything to me. You were my food. You were my nourishment. You were my life. But I don't need you anymore. And then look up at the world and make a declaration. World, you used to be everything to me. Your approval was my nourishment. You were my life. But I don't need you anymore. And on your deathbed, on your deathbed, take a mirror, hold it up over your belly, look down at your, at your, at your belly button and talk to your body. Your shriveled up, shrinking old body, your old body trapped within its own sorrows and joys and pain and, and make a declaration. Old body, I don't need you anymore. Oh yeah, it hurts to say goodbye, but in your ugly old shriveled up place, I'm gonna bear a mark of glory on that new body. <laughs> now if you think that that navel on the screen is too sexy for church. Don't look at it. Look at me. They'll <laughs> fix you. But the one on the screen is probably most accurate biblically. The word navel, as far as I can tell, only appears three times in the Bible. First, uh, Ezekiel 16, four. God says to his people, his bride, he says this, when I found you, your navel cord was uncut. Proverbs 3 that we already read, trust in the Lord. Then verse 8, it will be health to your navel. Don't trust that old tether to the, to the world. Trust the, the, the Lord and let your navel heal and, and become a beautiful sign. And then Song of Solomon 7-2, the great bridegroom says to his bride, your navel is a rounded bowl, baby, filled with wine. See, I think Jesus finds the belly button of his bride to be particularly sexy. For it's that place where his people once trusted this world and the things of this world, but have now been caught and healed because they surrendered to his judgment and trusted him, the word. That place is filled with blood that's turned to wine. See, I think that place is somehow this place where the cord is, is cut, judgment, where you lose your attachment to your old self in this world and you receive him, where you ingest him, your authority, the faithful one. For on the night that the faithful one was betrayed by everyone. He took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. Body broken, blood shed, in love. That's the stigmata, the wounds, the mark of the second birth. So come to this table, surrender your life, and receive his. Worship him. When all the world was unfaithful, God remained faithful. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in his name, believe, amen. And your love endures forever. For Lord Jesus, you are faithfulness, and Father, you are love. And we praise you. Amen. Scripture says, as far as you are able, strive to live at peace with all men. So don't go out looking for stigma, okay? I think sometimes Christians do that, just try to tick people off so they can be cool. However, if you make the Word of God, the living Word of God, your authority, you will be stigmatized. I told you a little bit about my stigma t tonight, but if you follow Jesus for any amount of time at all, you've got one. Um, I mean, maybe it's relatives that think you're a little bit insane. Maybe it's a husband, maybe it's a wife. Uh, if you're living in other parts of the world, maybe it's a government that's trying to kill you. Maybe it's religious authorities, civic authorities, I don't know. But, but if you have a stigma, because in your heart you desire to be faithful to the Word of God, well, I'm saying don't be ashamed of that stigma. Don't be ashamed of your stigmata. In fact, the Lord Jesus finds it particularly attractive. It is the glorious belly button on the bride of Christ. You see, I think, I think we're being born again. It's not a curse. It's a gift from the Father. So believe the gospel in Jesus' name.